a dream that all men are created equal. story. I'm your host Ian Kath. This is episode 65. Thanks for coming back. Today's show is all about something that we all love. We all love food, don't we? But we don't love food in the same way. Some people are more passionate than others. Some people love to consume it. Some people love to create it. Some people just love it because they have to, because they've got to survive. Today's episode is one of those episodes that I'm always looking for. I'm always looking for that somebody, that somebody who's really intensely passionate about something and today's passion is all about food but in a slightly different way to the way we normally think of it but first i just want to remind you that you can get hold of me by sending an email to chat at yourstorypodcast.com always love hearing from you the site of course as i just mentioned then is yourstorypodcast.com if you've never been over to the site it's worth checking out and if you're on the site just click on the iPhone image and you can go over to iTunes and make sure you're subscribed so that you get the podcast automatically downloaded to your iTunes folder. The music, of course, is from IOTA Promonet at IOTA Alliance. That's where I get all the great music. And if you like it, if you like this particular track that's bubbling away in the background, you can just follow the links and get the music or other tracks from other artists so that you can support them as well. Remember, your story is part of the Lifestyle Pod Network, which is one of the greatest little podcasting networks around. By associating with people at the Lifestyle Pod Network, I get a bit of support. We support each other and we can make a bit of a community so that we as podcasters know what's going on in the world so that we can all produce slightly better shows for you, the listener, can enjoy. Please take the time to check out the Lifestyle Pod Network. Just follow the links on the site and you might discover some other great podcasts that really suit you and sum up what lifestyle is all about. Just recently... I've been having a little bit of an adventure, just a little one. I went to Melbourne for the Oral History Association of Australia's National Conference. And I was hanging out with all these oral historians because I want to flush out a little bit of my knowledge, mainly for Create Your Life Story, which is my other podcast. If you don't know about it, it's my other podcast that teaches people how to record life stories, how to record themselves or someone they know, probably within their family. Give them all the advice, all the tidbits, all the things that I've learned over here at Your Story and help them so that they can achieve what they want to achieve. But it's also important for me to get out and about and learn some things from people who already know. And that's where the oral history community can be really quite invaluable for me. And I wanted to get down there and meet a few of them. Anyway, on the Saturday night, we had a dinner. And the dinner was really quite exotic and something I wanted to check out because it was a meal that was based on recipes from 1880, 1890, colonial, post-colonial food from Australia. And I was interested to see what sort of meals maybe they ate. So I thought I had to get along. Anyway, during the meal, as it was being presented, a woman got up to tell us the story of this meal and some of the backstory of the food and the sort of food they ate during that period and 
everybody was just amazed at her presentation. How well she presented, her personality was bigger than life and so engaging. And I thought, this is what I'm after. This is what your story is all about. Your story is all about passion and what gets people out of bed. So I asked her to come on the show and fill us in on some of the backstory, some of her passion for food and the things that make her motivated. And some of the backstory on the eating habits that are long gone, that have been forgotten in the dusty pages of history that have been lost because nobody really put them down because we didn't have systems to put down like we have today with video and audio. So I sat down and we discussed all about Charmaine's life. Here's a story. Hello Charmaine and welcome to your story. Thanks. My little podcast about people who I find interesting and fascinating and the reason I've invited you on the show today is Last night I went to the Oral History Association of Australia's National Conference dinner and there was an array of food that just blew my mind and you got up on stage and described how the menu had been devised and what we were eating and the reason we were eating and, and the purpose of why you chose that particular menu. And you did it with such a plum that I wanted to have you on the show today because I just thought, well, you could be very entertaining. And I'm <laughs> interested to dig into who Charmaine is because I think there is a lot more here and everybody at my table was going, what is she about? So... Oh, that's interesting to know. Yes. So let's find out what Charmaine's about. First of all, let's talk about last night. Last night's dinner was a, an historical menu, wasn't it? Yes, I chose the recipes from two um, uh, colonial cookbooks, Australian cookbooks, that were both bestsellers of their era. Yep, from, uh, from what, what period of time? One was 1888 and the other one was about 1890-ish. I can't remember the exact date. Okay, okay. It went into about 30 editions, the second one, Mrs. McClurkin's cookbook. So, But the original was 1889. A hundred years after settlement in Australia. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so very much Melbourne exists, Sydney yeah. existed, you know, Brisbane was underway, you know, Absolutely. the yeah. cities were developing. But... Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, late colonial, we're, we're not that far off, um, you know, not being colonies by that point, but... Yeah, Federation um, was around the corner. Yeah. That's right. And, okay, tell the listeners about what you chose from the menu, just to give them a bit of an idea of what we're talking about. We're not talking about bully beef here, are we? No, suet, <laughs> or boiled mutton. Oh, yes, suet, suet puddings. <laughs> okay, and all those I chose um, a mulligatawny soup. We, now, what's mulligatawny mean? Well, mullet, well, I don't know really what it means. It's a British term, and it, it means a soup that has um, spices in it, essentially, uh, and it's generally made with chicken. Okay. Um, uh, so that's, that's sort of the, the, the outline of that soup. What it reminded me of last night was laksa, without the noodles. Yeah, yeah, quite similar, yeah. Not, not, uh, not, and also the, the, the chef had garnished it in a very modern way, which is probably why it reminded you a bit more of Luxa as well, because of the coconut and the, the things he garnished it with, which actually would not have been how it was garnished in the 19th century, but that's OK. Yeah, it, they did a very nice job of it, and they were also... They've got a particular um, remit in that kitchen. They're trying to train people, yes, and they're trying was, to train them to work in... a hospitality school yeah, where we had dinner. They're trying to train them to work at, you know, at, in, at modern functions and yeah. things. So they've essentially modernised the colonial recipes that I chose. That's actually not what I do. 
Okay. So um, what, what, just go through the rest of the menu. Oh, okay. So there was a, a snapper that was... Um, it was meant to have a stuffing, but they did an individual pieces, so they coated it in um, breadcrumbs with nutmeg, and it had an oyster sauce, and the oyster sauce had mace and black pepper in it. Then we had a braised um, ox cheek with uh, pickled walnuts. Which was extraordinary, was as extraordinary. I said. You know, yeah. That piece of beef... I cut with my fork yeah. and you'd swear it was a chocolate yeah. mousse the it way did it look, It was very much. And that's the beauty of... And, you know, this is one of the things. We've sort of forgotten, you know, we know how to cook a steak, we can cook a chop, we can, you know, put a leg of lamb in the oven, but we have largely forgotten how to use a lot of these additional bits of meat. And so, interestingly, they've become almost designer food and there's something that you find on the menu in very expensive restaurants because people enjoy them, but they don't know how to cook them. A lot of butchers don't stock them. My experience with butchers now is that a lot of them don't even necessarily know how to cut down a carcass because it all comes in, and they just well, chop I... up the steaks and chop up the chops, and that's it. Mm. I remember um, growing up uh, eating things like tongue. Yeah. Uh, which was, wasn't that uncommon, but nowadays it's a bit of a premium item. Absolutely. All, all the offal is premium. It's amazing. You know, you go and try and buy some of the oxtail. Yeah. Oxtail's a premium item, whereas, you know, once upon a time it was something... Peasant food. Yeah, that you ate because you couldn't afford any other meat. Yeah. And then we had a, um, just to finish, we had a cabinet pudding which is like a very, very fancy bread and butter pudding, but you don't use bread and butter, you use bunge biscuits and almond biscuits. And then we had a bit of a coffee jelly. Yeah. Now, what was surprising about this is it wasn't boiled mutton. It wasn't what everybody no. was expecting. It wasn't rabbit or something like that. Mm. It was actually good mm. food, uh, highly tasty, highly nutritious. Mm. And you told a story last night, which I'd love you to fill us in on, about how how well they did eat 120 years ago. How, how well, I have to say, I think people ate. I'm still... You and it know, may I'm well still, be the upper classes who ate this way too. There was, the, the very interesting thing about colonial Australia is we've got a, very, got a very distinct idea these days about what diversity means, and diversity now means to us people from different ethnic backgrounds. But actually, colonial Australia was incredibly diverse, and it was diverse in the sense of class. Class was a huge factor. Um, and that, there was not necessarily a money thing there, although money was part of it. And there was also distinct divisions between Irish, Scottish, Welsh. Uh, so there was a lot of diversity. We just don't... We, we can't see it anymore because we've got a different idea about what diversity means. And the class thing has a huge impact on food. It always has. It has historically. And there were people in Melbourne who I believe ate very well, and they probably were of the upper classes. I think middle-class people, certainly by the late 19th century, were probably also eating very well because... Melbourne was a fairly prosperous place, and then and, and money's got to do with with um, how well people eat, obviously. Um, so Melbourne was um, had a you know it was a fairly wealthy, well it had been a very wealthy city until uh, there was there was a time when it was the wealthiest city in the world. Yeah, it was a very serious depression in the early 1890s. So the class thing was very significant. And I, so, as I say, I do believe that certainly the upper classes would have eaten very well. It's a very, very interesting um, aspect to a little book I've just written about cooks because people still had domestic... Servants. Servants. And there's a lot... I've found some very funny things in the, in the Melbourne papers about cooks 
there's a lot of stuff about cooks. You know, you couldn't get a good cook and you had to pay them so much and, um, you know, they couldn't cook and... So people were expecting quality... Well, the upper classes didn't know how to cook. I mean, they'd never been in kitchens before. And they expected someone to do that work for them. Now, the other aspect of that was cooking was really hard work. I mean, to cook, you had to start a fire. You had to keep that fire going all day because you didn't want to be putting it off and on. So the kitchen was dusty, it was smoky, it was hot. And, and just to make... The other thing I came to appreciate was just to make a meal was such hard work. Like, we make a cake now, and if you want a cream, butter and sugar, you just turn on the, the hand beater or, or your, you know, your KitchenAid that you've seen on MasterChef and you've rushed out and bought. You, you just turn it on and it does it. But to do that by hand is actually very hard work. Yeah. We've got to put the, um, the eggs into it. So everything was really hard work. So there was this whole sort of aspect of, of physical work about about the kitchen and then there, of course there was that class thing and it still exists in countries like India where labour is associated with being lower class so of course wealthy people did not want to go into the kitchen for a whole lot of reasons and one of them was because it was labouring it wasn't necessarily seen as a craft or something that was enjoyable it was labour and it was labour um, so there was that aspect to cooking. And then, so what happened was a lot of middle-class women had to go into the kitchen because there actually weren't any cooks. There was a shortage of cooks. So the ones that were available could charge a lot for their services. So the middle-class couldn't afford them. So women had to start going into the kitchens where if they'd had their choice, they probably wouldn't have gone. So Margaret Pearson, who I was talking about last night, um, who taught cooking classes, there became this thing for, for women to go to cooking classes to, you know, to learn how to cook because they didn't know how to. They hadn't been brought up to cook. Then gas came in, gas cooking came into the kitchen. So the cooking classes, what sort of things were they being taught to cook? Probably things like that we had last night. OK, pretty good quality food. Well, yes. I mean, I've got, I've got a cookbook from... There was a, a school started in London called the National Training School of Cookery. And Margaret Pearson, who I talked to you about last night, who wrote one of the books that I used, she was trained at that school. And quite a few significant 19th century and early 20th century cookery teachers in Australia are actually trained at this particular college. And I have a copy of their cookbook that they use, their handbook. So, yes, very, very similar food. Those recipes pretty much come from that book. So, again, it's nothing like the myth that we've grown up on of very bad quality food that Australians eat. I don't, I don't believe so. Um, so is it a complete myth or has it got some basis in reality? I think that reality? if you think about what happened when Europeans landed here, um, it was predominantly men. They were predominantly um, of... They were either soldiers or of, you know, the lower classes. I doubt they'd had any culinary education. Their resources were limited. They were able to grow meat pretty quickly. I expect that they probably weren't eating that well. Although I think they may have started eating better than we think, quicker than we think. Um, so there probably is some basis in it. I think people, I think Australians definitely ate a lot of meat because meat was a luxury food in England. And if you were a poorer person or a lower class person, you wouldn't have eaten much meat. So to come out here and suddenly have this, essentially have as much meat as you liked available to you, no wonder they ate a lot of meat. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have any, 
hang-ups about it. We've got these modern hang-ups about, you know, meat's bad for you and if you eat too much meat, it's dangerous. They didn't feel that way about it. And I actually don't believe they ate as much meat as we think because I think people ate smaller portions of food. Even dinner plates. Dinner plates are much bigger now. Right. And, and we grow much bigger animals. When we have a steak, you know, it's, it's as big as a dinner plate. I don't think that they would have had pieces of meat that were as big as what we have now. And because you're not growing as big an animal, you've got smaller plates, the work is a lot harder to produce the, yeah. the food, but it's hard to produce the meals. Mm. Everything is reduced down in size, maybe. That's my thought about it. It's very hard to know how much people actually ate. I am sure there are people that ate enormous piles of meat. People didn't have as much money. And whilst meat was more available, they weren't giving it away. Yeah. So, you know, you'd have a roast and then you would use up, you know, the roast for the next couple of days to the point where there's recipes to get the lamb bone or the chicken bone and you score them and you rub them with mustard and you grill them. Everything was used. I think that people did eat meat probably at every meal. I just don't necessarily believe it was huge quantities yeah. of it. Yeah. I, in fact, I propose that in eating what we consider as an average steak, which is pretty bloody big. I think that might have even been almost as much meat in one meal as people may have eaten across the day. People were smaller as well, mm -hmm. so they didn't necessarily need as much food. I don't think there was the problem with obesity that we have now. Of course, there would have been people who were overweight, but I don't think it was a societal issue like it is now. Of course, people were more physically active as well, so there was that. But the other things about it are food was had to be local. There wasn't really any choice. You couldn't fly things in. And even transporting things, I mean, it was actually quicker to transport things by, sh by ship around the coast. The roads were pretty bad. So people had to eat locally and they, they largely had to eat seasonally. I'm not saying foods weren't bought in. I know that right from the start, Melbourne was bringing in food from Tasmania, but it would have been things like potatoes, cabbage. But Tasmania is hardly California. Yeah, it's hardly California. Um, so there was that local aspect. People did not pump food full of hormones and God only knows what else. The thing that I think that was probably different about food is that it tasted better. I mean, sorry, not, not, not so tasted better. I think it probably had more flavour, perhaps Perhaps meals were simpler, but I think the produce that went into it and the work that went into it, I think that they probably tasted really good. Mm. And I think that we think it tasted terrible. And they may not have had an assault on their taste buds the way we probably assault it now with so many varieties of flavours because we have Absolutely. so much available to us. So they could probably appreciate yeah. subtlety a lot better than I, we can. And that's exactly what I think. And I think, you know, a lot of us now, you know, you, it's not, unless it's Asian or Indian, it's not exciting, but actually what a lot of people do is they go and buy those jars of things mm. that are full of starches and, and enhancers yeah. and they do, they assault your taste buds. I've got a personal hatred of that dreadful chilli, Thai chilli sauce that comes in a bottle and when you go to a lot of Asian restaurants now and they don't have to even be Thai and they drown the food in that, it's horrible, it's, you can taste the thickener in it and it's really overly sweet, it's awful and we've sort of come to think that means the food's exciting. Mm -hmm. I actually think that the, the, the taste in 
And I'm saying that because I've made these recipes and I'm not even probably making them with food that potentially had as much taste as it may have. Well, how do you get the flavour of a, uh, a beast that maybe nowadays might be 18 months old, but back mm. then it might have been five years old? Oh, and that's the uh, other thing. Other flavour yeah. altogether. They're very distinct about what they call meat. Like, we just call anything lamb now. Is it lamb? Who knows? I mean, whereas they ate mutton mm. and they liked mutton. Mm. And in fact, it was believed that a beast that was about three years old, between three and five years old, was, sheep. I yeah, sheep, was ideal. Right. Um, and they preferred that to So land. they preferred a sheep between three and five years yes. old. Whereas for us now, that's almost like... Well, we don't... I don't even think sheep get that old, do they? Okay. We do well, no. We like sort of this... They tend to go to be rendered, yeah. rendered down for yeah. fat, <laughs> for tallow. And there was a real understanding of meat. I don't have a relationship with a butcher. I very rarely go to the butcher. I mean, I'm not a big meat eater, mainly because a lot of it doesn't even taste very good. And to get meat that tastes good, it's so expensive. If I was, you know, Mrs O'Brien housewife 100 years ago, I would know my butcher by name. And I could go in and say, you know, hello, Joe, I'd like a calf's foot today because I'm going to make calf's foot jelly and... Mm. Well, I'd suggest even 40 years ago you probably could still do that. Yeah, and I, today. Yeah, I, well, I sort of remember that, you know, probably was a bit well, about 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, with my mother going into the local butcher and they, they had carcasses hanging mm. up in there and they cut them down and I don't think they were slaughtering the animals out the back, but they certainly had carcasses. What's driven you to be so passionate about food? And a lot of people are passionate about food, but you're passionate about it in a different, oh, different way to what, yeah, to I've, the way I've seen it. I have, yeah, I'm not passionate and I hate being called a foodie. I've actually got a rejection to that word. Um, I've always been interested in food. It's a purely selfish motive. I've been a comfort eater most of my life. I think there's been a... Since I was a child, I've been very interested in food, mainly eating it. But I do remember being fascinated by my mother's cookbooks. Again, because I like looking at the pictures of the cakes and thinking, oh, that'd be nice to eat. And but you seem to approach it from an intellectual base. You're not like most foodies I know, in mm. that you're not just a gastronaut. You're not just there for the indulgence of the food. You seem to be, and I'm making huge assumptions here because mm. I don't know you, but you seem to be somebody who really wants to get into the nuances of all of the minutiae of the food. Like, you're, you said last night you're an expert which is a huge self-statement to make yeah, I don't know. <laughs> about Indian cooking. Yeah, I actually went, I actually got up this morning and thought, oh God, should I have said I'm an expert? Well, I know a lot about it. I okay, have spent a lot of, I have spent a lot of time in India. I've spent a lot of time in kitchens in India. I've done a lot of research. I've put a lot of time into it. I think I could be justified in saying I'm, I'm expert in it. I know a lot about it. I'm writing the Penguin Food Guide to India at the moment which is about regional food. I'm very passionate about changing people's perceptions of Indian food as well, because Indian regional food is amazing, really incredible, so diverse. So different to what we know of Oh, what as we Indian get in an Indian restaurant is just, I mean, what we get in an Indian restaurant's not even Indian food, it's actually a British version. It's sort of, uh, it's gone from, the dishes have gone from India, sort of to Britain, and then out from Britain as this representation wow. of Indian food. Dishes that are on the menus exist in India, but what you usually get, like a vindaloo that you get in an Indian restaurant, is nothing like what a, a real vindaloo is. I'm passionate about that as well. Okay, I'm saying I consider myself an expert. Um, as she grimaces at, just yeah, a little bit. At, well, at the risk of being, you know, challenged by somebody, but I. 
yeah, I reckon somebody asked me something, I think I could probably provide... Well, the question came up, you've made the statement that the British invented curry. Mm. What does that mean? That's a, that's a statement that I saw okay. a lot of people go wide-eyed over. Yeah, well, the, the word curry doesn't exist in India. It, it, it's used extensively now, yes. but it's not an Indian word. It doesn't exist in any Indian language. There are words that are similar to it. There is a dish sounds like curry when you say it, but actually, I can't. It, it's slightly. It's like curry, but it sounds. When Indians say it, it sounds like curry, but it's not actually that word. It's spelt differently for a start, um, and it's. But it's a very specific dish of a like a gravy made from chickpea flour, and it has these particular dumplings in it. And it it's also uses a, a spice called hing or asafoetida, which has got a very distinct taste. Most Westerners would not like that particular dish. I actually don't like it, and I'm pretty fond of Indian food. There is another word that's a Tamil word that's used for a particular sort of soup that they think maybe the word curry came from. The other theory is that it actually came via the Portuguese because the Portuguese were in India a uh, hundred years before the British were um, and they have a word for like a stew it's like caril and they think that the British may have then picked that up and turned it into curry and applied it as a across Indian food now in India dishes all have their own name we just say curry as, yeah, as a, a sort of a generic, generic term, term. whereas yeah. dishes will have their own name. Now, the interesting thing is that curry is now widely used in, in India, certainly in English. Um, when people are speaking in their, in their own languages, they probably call the dish a particular name. But I have a, a, a very a, a pretty big collection of regional Indian cookbooks, and they will use the word curry. So I'm not saying it's not in use in India now, but it's not an Indian... Right. Word. And the curry, and what we call curry powder does come from India, but Indians make masalas and they'll make a masala for every single dish. It'll be a different masala. Now it might be subtle differences. And some and each each region will have what they call a garam masala, which is a bit more of a generic masala that might go into a wide range of dishes. But these things are varied, they're generally made fresh. The British got that idea and turned it into one curry powder that was put into anything that was called a curry. So essentially they all taste the same. I'm not the first person to say the no, British no. invented curry. So you've got this huge interest. You said you've been a person fascinated with eating food since you were a little girl. What are you doing with this in your life now? You, you helped out with organising the menu for last mm -hmm. night, which was a pretty big call, really, when... You know, to my way of reckoning, you were brought oh. in as an expert by the sounds of it, as somebody could help out yeah. and create. I'm not. I'm not an expert in colonial food. I've got a long way to go on that. But, but it um, sounds like you've I'm got, you've got a huge food. interest in a lot of stuff. Oh, and so, I have done a lot of a lot of so research. Are you and... a, uh, a food academic? Are you? A, uh... I think in a, I think in another life I should have been an academic. I'm not. I, I keep toying with should I should I do a PhD? Well, I write. What I do is write. I mean, I'm writing. I've just finished a book, and I'm, as I said, I'm writing the Penguin Food Guide to India. So that's your career as a writer. As um, such. Yeah, I write about food, um, but in as you know, with all that historical and cultural stuff behind it, I write recipes. I've done a recipe book. I mean, I teach cookery, so I've got a technical expertise as well. So your career at the moment, or what it has been, is it is it a food career? 
because you haven't answered it, it almost sounds like you're a freelance food consultant who comes yeah, in I, from many different angles. Yeah, I do lots of different things. I've had a catering business before. I've, when my working life has largely been around food, I actually, in terms of work and earning a consistent living, I actually work for the Red Cross um, in a training and development role. But I started in that organisation as a catering coordinator to feed all the firefighters during emergencies. So I don't, my role now has, it doesn't have anything to do with food. But I do lots of different things. So I, you know, I can, I sometimes do catering. I do what I call food coaching, which is one-on-one -on -one with people or one-on-two. I'll go to someone's house or they can come to my place. I actually challenge people to think about food and also to think about all the stuff that's marketed to us and the way it's marketed and, you know, even the whole MasterChef thing. I mean, I've got nothing against it, but my God, it's a marketing exercise. You know, oh, it's... I've got lots against it. Um, <laughs> well, I don't even watch it, no, so I've got, I've got no, no particular... I, I have major problems with MasterChef. Yeah. I think is yeah. I, I get, I, I just, the thing I don't like about it is people saying, oh, I've always wanted to do this, and no, oh, this is so fabulous. I think, well, why didn't you go and be a chef? Oh. Well, you didn't go and be a chef because it's damn hard work. Yes. You don't get paid that well. So you went off to be a lawyer because you got paid more. And actually, do you really want to be a chef or do you just want the glory? Because it's really, really hard work. And it's one of the reasons I don't necessarily cook for a living because it is really physically hard work. And I don't ever actually want to cook for a very large number of people again. When I do catering, it's very exclusive and it's probably 20 people at the most. I don't like doing, I've done it, I've done big numbers of people and it's just such hard work. And it's sort of boring as well, you just got to cut and chop the same thing over and over and over again. So how come you got roped in on last night's gig? Mainly I think because I know Jill, probably asked me a year ago actually. So I came up with the dinner and she asked me to, to talk about it. I, we did a similar thing earlier in the year, smaller scale, but along the same lines. Um, and again, I talked about the food, but I, I gave a different talk on that particular occasion. Have you ever thought about having something as, as exotic as your own cooking show? Um, oh, look, if somebody asked me to do that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't object to it. I'm not seeking that out because at the I moment. Because I saw three people around my table go, mm. you know, based on the way you were presenting mm. your story, She'd be tremendous with her own cooking show. Oh, I, and, we're, yeah. and we're thinking, you know, something like a regional cooking show, you yeah. know, where you're travelling around doing something, um, you know. I, look, I w obviously I wouldn't object to that. I don't, I don't even know how people do those sort of things or how that happens. Mm. The thing I will do is I will continue to write books. I mean, I'll do that for the rest of my life. I've already got, you know, the next, you know, couple of years probably. Well, let's, because this goes out to the world, let's plug the, what books you've written and what are coming so that if people okay. are really keen, they can track them down. So what have you done today? Um, I've written, the very first book I did was actually for Lonely Planet. It was about food in um, New Orleans. And then I've written a history of food in Delhi called Flavours of Delhi. And then I did a recipe book from an urban village in India called Recipes from an Urban Village. And then I've written a book called Flavours of Melbourne, which is a history of food in Melbourne. I've just finished a little book about food in colonial Melbourne, about two very specific stories. One was about, is about Spears and Pond, the, the guys that had the Café de Paris, and the other one's about cooks in Melbourne that I was telling you about. And that's going to, Yeah, that's going to be done by a publisher called Arcade. They do these really nice little... It's only a small book. And we haven't actually decided on a name, but one possibility is The Devil Sends Cooks, 
um, because somebody wrote into the Melbourne newspaper and, and quoted this very old proverb that goes, God sends meat, but the devil sends cooks. So that's to be named. And I'm currently writing the Penguin Food Guide to India, right. which is about regional food in India. Which sounds like a book that'll be promoted internationally. Oh, I hope so. They'll both come out okay. March, April next year. 2012. Yeah. Do you have a personal website? I do have a website. A presence it's, on the web. It's just www.charmaineobrien.com. Okay. Just spell Charmaine for us. Oh, C H A R M A I N E, and then it's O'Brien. O B R I E N. Oh, my name actually has yeah. an apostrophe, but it doesn't you, have one in there. You the... don't do that in URLs, yeah. yeah. Was, did you say .com or .com? No, it's just .com. Yep, good. No worries. Um, okay, so if people want to get hold of you, there'll be links on your oh, site. Oh, yeah, my, my, there's an email there and yeah. my, my phone number's there if people are interested in... Um, and you know. mention of the books as they get published will be on there, I imagine. Uh, yes, and I, I do often link to the cookery classes I'm teaching. We've gone through the food. What else is exciting in your life? What else gets you out of bed and floats your boat? Oh, it's all pretty much about food, really. Because, I mean, the food thing for me is tied in with everything. It's tied in with travel. I've sort of used the food thing as a... I mean, the, the reason I'm so diverse about the angles I come to food is because it's a way of exploring the world. It's a really mm. easy way. I know so much about the world because of food. I'm a very passionate cook. Um, and do you have a huge kitchen with all of the bells and whistles? Oh, you'd be amazed at my kitchen. Well, I think people go, are quite you can, shocked. You can at... go two ways, can't you? You can have everything or mm. you could be so minimalist because you've got the skills. My kitchen is full of beautiful things. It has art. It has all sorts of wacky things in it, as, as well as a diverse range of pots and pans. I have very few electrical things. Um, I have an electric spice grinder, which I use every single day. Um, I don't have a lot of gadgets. Um, I long for the day when I have a beautiful kitchen, but it's just not happening at the moment. Is, it, is it one of these showpiece kitchens in the sense of so much bric-a-brac and stuff in it? You know, oh, that, it's... it's just amazing. Somebody walks in and there's just copper pans and... Oh, no, no, no. Like there's, those... there's like art and um, a collection of sort of odd things and beautiful Victorian vases and you know, fake birds and it's just a bit sort of wacky really. A bit, um, a bit eccentric though. Yeah, yeah, it's got a, a distinct... I like colour, I have a lot of colour as you can see when I'm well, see what what wearing. wearing. Today. A blue jumper, um, I'm a very... pink uh, vest and a multicoloured Indian um, scarf. Um, so I have a lot of colour in my kitchen. I think a, a chopping board and a good knife is is, you know, if you, you can do anything from that. I actually have a lot of Le Creuset, all that cast iron mm. stuff, and what I'm finding is, it's, I just feel like it's, I've cooked so much, I'm sort of having a bit of trouble with my shoulders at the moment. It's too heavy. I'm gonna to have to actually um, start getting some other stuff. It's very, very heavy. Um, well, there's a resurgence back to aluminium. Yeah, well, I've got. There's a very nice brand that does really. I won't. Um, it does beautiful stainless steel cookware that I'm fortunate to have a couple of pieces of, but it's very expensive. But I might start slowly accumulating that. I mean, I'd love to do a, a cookery show that was educative around food. I really like teaching cookery. I don't want to be a high school cookery teacher, but I, I would like to try and do more teaching of cookery 
I would um, I would love to see you do a cookery show based around a theme that you're passionate about. Yeah. And that could be any of the topics that we've talked about today. But if you followed that theme, doing a cookery show, I reckon you'd be, go down a trip. Yeah. And that's just, based on your performance last night. Yeah. Or a cookery school. I'm quite I'm quite keen on having you know Ms O'Brien's you know Academy of Domestic Arts or something. <laughs> Welcome back to the 19th century. Yeah, oh no, I love, I'm fascinated. I absolutely love, I love the Victorian era. It absolutely fascinates me. I don't want to live in it. I don't want to be a woman in that era, but I just find it, it just fascinates me. And the food is so interesting. I am really interested in British food and the history of British food and British food tradition. I actually go to a historic cooking school in, in the UK and the man that runs that school is the most interesting food person on the planet. He is absolutely fabulous so incredibly knowledgeable and interesting. Who is that? His name's Ivan Day and he's just incredible. He's, and he's got all the stuff, like he's actually got all the equipment. His website's called Historic Food, um, but the school, I don't, I suppose that might be the name of the school. It's amazing, it's fantastic. That would be my ideal holiday, is to go and do um, one of his cooking classes. I've been a couple of times, I'll go again. Um, but he's just incredible, so, so knowledgeable, so interesting, um, and having all the actual things to, to, you know, to see them being used. He's got a museum collection of, of jelly moulds and food moulds, and some really old ones. Just incredible. Um, so that, that's my idea. That's my ideal holiday. That would be my holiday destination pick: is to go to a cookery school. Well, some people are passionate about it, other people aren't, but you definitely are. Yeah. So, Charmaine, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks. It's it pleasure. Um, my pleasure too. Yeah, it's, it's, lovely. Lovely. it's lovely to talk to somebody who's so passionate about food. Ah, yes. Well, thank you. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. You can find more great podcasts at lifestylepodnetwork.com.au.